everybody. You're listening to Christ Fellowship based in Northeast Florida. We believe that we are broken by life, healed by his grace, and lifted together. Join us as we dive into God's word together each week. have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of John chapter 14, and we will continue our discussion on the problem passages in the Bible. Now, if you're wondering what that is, I'll give you a brief description. There's a lot of verses in the Bible that when you read them, while they're there in the Bible, we have a tendency to shrink away from them. We have a tendency to look at those things and say, why is that there, or I don't like that, or that makes me uncomfortable. And I'm not talking about things in the Bible that point out, like, listen, you're doing something wrong, let's go ahead and fix that, let's go ahead and live a different way so that we can enjoy a better relationship with God. I'm talking about the passages that, when you read them, they either seem too harsh to actually be in the Bible, when it's supposed to be a book of love from God to his people that he wishes to be in a relationship with, or they seem to be contradictory to the purpose and focus of the Bible. And what ends up happening is we will shrink away from them, and as a result, when people who are in pain, or people who are searching, or people who are confused, be they Christian or non-Christian, regardless of where they're at, at some point, someone is going to come to you with a question and say, I don't understand why this is here. I don't understand why that's in there. How can this be the Bible? And the only reason that becomes a problem is because at this church, And I hope you believe the same. We believe what the writer writes in Timothy where he says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for correction, reproof, and exhortation. I hate that verse for the very simple fact that sometimes you're reading nothing but genealogies in the Bible. This person was this person's dad, and this person was this person's dad, and this person was this person's dad. And then you go back to the book of Timothy, and it says all scripture, even the genealogies, all scripture is useful. The genealogies are useful. Those things that put us to sleep when we're trying to read our Bible and we decide that, okay, I'm going to read this before bedtime because sometimes I have a hard time sleeping and this is the boring part of the Bible so I can at least say I read the Bible and now I'll fall. Even the boring parts of the Bible, God said, is useful. All of it for correction, reproof, and exhortation. What's that mean? Correction. It means you're doing something. You think you've got it right. It's not quite right. It's not you're doing it out of malice. It's not you're doing it to just be rebellious. It's you're doing something that you sincerely believe is God-desired or that would extend or improve your relationship with Him, and you've got it wrong. Not out of malice, not out of rebellion, and so all Scripture is useful to correct, bring you back into the right spot. It's also useful for reproof. Reproof is when you're doing something wrong and you know you're doing it wrong. You don't care that you're doing it wrong. You're frustrated and you've kind of got the attitude of a toddler and say, well, this is what I want to do. I don't care what God says. I don't care what his Bible says. I want to do it my way. Now, before you start looking back and saying, I'm so glad I'm not like that anymore. I remind you that you still live in a world where you are still human, and I guarantee there are people in this world who frustrate you or tick you off or drain you, and at some point in there, God is going to be like, why don't you go and just love on that person, and all you can think to yourself is, I'm going to stomp my foot and say no, because they frustrate me and I don't want to deal with them. We all have a tendency to act like toddlers and throw tantrums sometimes. Reproof is when you are outright in conflict with God. God, I don't like what you asked. I don't like what you're saying, and I'm not going to do it. Reproof is do it right. Whether it's 
do it right because I want you to experience the best or do it right because if you don't, there's going to be some type of consequence, the consequence being the purpose, so that I feel a gentle pain in comparison to the greater pain that I would feel if I continue to rebel. So now we've got all scripture is useful to correct me. I think I'm doing it right. I've got it wrong. It'll correct me and put me in the right spot. To reprove me, I'm doing something wrong. I know I'm doing it wrong because I want to do it wrong and I don't like what God is asking me. Scripture will come in and put me in a place where it says you can't live like this anymore without confronting the reality that God disagrees or for exhortation that's when you are told by scripture that it's okay whether things are going bad or things are going well the verse and the word of God comes alongside you and comes underneath you almost like a bulwark to lift you up when life is hard the word of God comes in to support you because you can't support yourself anymore you become so broken down by life so injured by life that the word of God will come in and say you don't have to worry about standing you don't have to worry about doing anything right now you go ahead and collapse right here and I God the Father will hold you in my arms while you're broken maybe things are going great God will come underneath you and say you're doing awesome just keep going like that kind of when you see an eagle that's already flying and a gust of wind will come underneath it and the eagle without any effort whatsoever will be pushed to even better heights than it was already at or even if you're doing something wrong you've done wrong you've rebelled against God scripture will come in and say don't do that again but I still love you Scripture will come to you and say, that's not okay. I'm not all right with this, but in spite of that, even though I'm not okay with this, even though I expect you to do better by my grace, even though I will not accept this, nothing has changed in my love and affection and my desire to be intimate with you. All Scripture, start to finish, Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 22-20 is useful to correct me when I think I'm right, reprove me when I know I'm wrong, and encourage me whether life is good, bad, whether I'm doing well or awful. Now, if that's the case, what do I do when someone comes up to me with one of these problem passages that just doesn't seem to fit, that just doesn't seem to be the kind of thing a kind and loving God would say, that doesn't seem to be the kind of thing that would come from a Bible that is meant to inspire me or meant to refresh me or meant to resolve me or meant to protect. What do I do when those verses come along that make me want to shy away? Do you understand that the number one reason people do not like Christianity, it's really not because we're hypocrites. And by the way, hypocrisy is not, here's the standard and I messed up. I can't seem to live up to that. Nobody can live up to the standard. All have sinned and fall short. Sinned, past. Fall short, present. I realize I'm giving you a long introduction to get to this, but it is the basis for every sermon in this series. All have sinned and fall short. We're not talking about whether you got it right or wrong. What do I do? When someone comes to me with these problem passages, and I shove it aside. Preacher, I don't know what to do with this verse in the Bible. Well, don't worry about it. Deal with it later. Preacher, I don't, I don't know how to handle this verse. I don't understand what to do with it. It seems like a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. Just take it by faith. Aren't you kind of tired of people just telling you to suck it up and deal with it and everything will be all right? You understand the reason most people run away from Christianity. One of the reasons most people run away from Christ, one of the reasons most people run away from a God that loves them so much that he would step down from glory, put on flesh, take on their sin, die in their place. You want to, the main reason people run from a God like that is because we as his people, when they come to us with questions, because the question is uncomfortable, we shove it off to the side. 
and we invalidate the pain in their heart or the confusion in their mind when all the while God is saying, I just want to breathe some life into that. Preacher, I don't have all the answers. Neither do I. That's the nice thing about being human. You don't have to have all the answers. All God asks us to do is be able to give an answer. Did you know that the words I don't know is an answer? Might not work too well in school or on a test, but God loves that answer. Because when you give that answer to someone who comes to you with a painful place of the Bible, and you look at them and say, I'm not sure, I'm still wrestling with this. I don't quite get it. I wish I understood it, but it still plagues me to this day. I don't understand how it fits, but I've read enough, and I know enough of God to know that if it's in there, it is worth something, and it is used for something. I just don't have it yet, but I don't know. That is one of the best and most honest answers you can give. Rather than trying to make something up on the spot, rather than trying to spin so that it sounds good or rather than pushing it under the rug what it allows people to do when you give them the answer i don't know if you do know give them the right answer but when you come to that place where it's so confusing so painful so contorted that you have nothing what it allows people to do is be human and keep asking questions with god you want to know what my favorite thing about jesus was he let everybody ask questions even the jerks even the people who were trying to trick him. How many times you read in the passages? Now some Pharisees or some lawyers or some teachers or some scribes came to Jesus with a question to trick him. And he indulges it. And he doesn't mock them. Doesn't revile them. Doesn't shove them off to the side. He legitimately gives an answer every time. A sincere one. A full one. One that speaks to the depth of their heart. Even though their heart was meant to come with revileness. And to be nothing more than corrupt and spiteful to Jesus. Every time he gave an answer. That was meant to settle the heart. That was meant to bring the mind to peace and rest. And so now let's deal with this problem passage today. John chapter 14 verse 1. Jesus is talking. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so. I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place. I will come again. And receive you to myself. That where I am. There you may be also. Where I go. And you know the way. Thomas says to him. Lord we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And here's the problem passage. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You want to know why that's a problem? Because it's not very tolerant. It's not very accepting, is it? It's pretty clear. Jesus looks at them and says, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the light. Now, I realize if you grew up in church, that might be a second nature to you. That might be something that's very simple to you. The problem with that, though, is there is a world out there looking for a way to be in relationship with a Savior. But when they come confronted with that verse, all of a sudden they realize that not everything they believe or everything they want to take with them fits through the door that is Jesus. Have you ever noticed when Jesus is talking, he says, wide is the gate that leads to hell? It's easy to get through the gate that leads to hell because you can bring whatever you want with it. Once you're through the gate, though, man, it becomes really hard because everything's looking to rip you apart. And then he says, narrow is the gate that leads to heaven. You want to know why it's narrow? Because the only thing that he wants to come through that is you. He says, I don't want you to bring anything else with you. I just want, I want you. He, all of a sudden, when people come face to face, when Jesus looks at them and says, I am the way, the most awful thing 
that the church has done nowadays in a desperate attempt to appeal to a word, world that is running away from God as hard as they can is look at them and say, listen, whatever you believe, it's okay. God is love, and since God is love, and the Bible tells us that God is love, he loves you. And while it's true he loves you, let me give you the part where they really mess it up. Since God loves you, since God is love, since the blood of Jesus is so effective to cover every single sin, just believe whatever you want, and you'll get to heaven to enjoy relationship with God because he loves you so much. And it would be so much easier if that were true until Jesus utters these awful words and he says, no one comes to the Father except me. Preacher, I'm a good person. No one comes to the Father except through me. But preacher, I do a lot of good things. I give to charity. I'm good to my wife. I'm a good father. I'm a good mother. I'm very generous with what God has given me. I'm a good person. No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't say if you are good, then you can get to the Father through me. He says through me. You want to know why there's going to be some people in heaven who on earth were just terrible, terrible humans? And you know who I'm talking about because you just thought of someone who says they're a Christian and you just look at them like, are you sure? Because you are the worst. And there's probably someone who looks at you and says, are you sure? You are the, I hope not. I'm sure when Christine and I argue, that's what she thinks. Are you really a Christian? You are the worst. I am a Christian. I'm a pastor. I'm right. I will be praying at the altar today, not for repentance, but for the safety of my life. And I would appreciate it if you would intercede with me on that. You want to know why there's going to be some terrible people in heaven? Because they went through the way of the truth and the life. Because the conversation about heaven and hell, the conversation about intimacy with the Father, the conversation about having a relationship with Jesus has nothing to do with right or wrong, good or bad. You cannot look at Jesus and say, but I was a good person. You cannot look at Jesus and say, but I didn't do bad things because he's not having a question or a conversation with us about what is right and wrong or about what is good and bad or good and evil. The only conversation Jesus came to have is dead and alive. Am I dead in sin or am I alive in Christ? And here's the crazy part. Once someone's been made alive in Christ, they still might do some of the things that they did when they were dead. That's why you can have Christians who just seem like awful people. They'll make it to heaven and all of a sudden you realize it had nothing to do with you making sure you were at church every Sunday. It had nothing to do with making sure you read a chapter of the Bible a day. It had nothing to do with you making sure that you prayed every single moment of every day. Those are good things. Should you do them? I'd love to see you every Sunday. I'd love to see you every Wednesday. I'd love to see you at every event that we have. I'd love to see you tithe. I like when there's tithes that go pretty high because that means the bills are going to be paid without any stress. But those things, you can do those things and still go to hell. You can read your Bible every day and still go to hell. You can show up to church every day and still go to hell. You can go ahead and preach the gospel and still go to hell. You want to know how I know? Because Jesus said there will be many on that day who look at me and say, Lord, did we not cast out devils in your name? Did we not heal in your name? Did we not raise the dead in your name? And he'll say, depart from me. I don't even know you. I'm the only one preaching right now. Conversation is not about dead or alive. Did I go through Jesus or did I not? The greatest lie that the church has given the world, not Satan, but the greatest lie the church has given the world is all roads lead to God. 
Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be simple? Wouldn't that be easy? Now, if that were true, Jesus had no reason to come and die. What a waste of time. What a waste of his divinity to come and do that. That's not the case. It'd be easier if that were the case. I wouldn't have to worry so much about whether or not people are going to heaven or hell. No, the reality is, is that we believe in a Bible that says Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. When you use the word the in a sentence, it is called the definitive article because you are defining a singular point at this thing. When you say the, you are making a statement of solidarity. You are making a statement of exclusion. When you use the word a, it is an indefinite article, meaning there may be many. This is a method of doing this. This is a thing I can do. Jesus, when he speaks these words, is very specific. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Why does he make sure to say all three of those things? Well, because way is how you live your day to day. I am the way, meaning the only way that works with my life is going to be if it's the way that Jesus wants me to. Do I get it right all the time? Obviously not. Do you get it right all the time? Obviously not. This isn't about me getting it right and wrong. This is about me going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, what's the way today? If I mess it up and if I screw it up, I understand that I've got to come back to repent to you, but I love that part where it says that you are faithful and just to forgive me of all unrighteousness. You don't stand in heaven's throne looking down at me with a raggedy old look of disappointment or embarrassment no, you look at me with the same look of love and affection as a father looks at his son when he is filled with pride, even on my worst days where I screw everything up. The conversation of the way is, am I going to do everything I can by the grace of God to go the same direction Jesus is going? I am the way. Well, what about the Quran? Don't they talk about God? They believe that they were descended from Abraham, and they were, by the way. Ishmael and Isaac are both descended from Abraham. That's why they don't really like each other over there in the Middle East. The Quran's got it wrong, though, because what they say is that they're the blessed child, and Isaac was kicked out, and Abraham kept Ishmael. And so the Quran is the accurate one. But really, when you look at it, you see the Old Testament, or as the Jews would call it, the Torah, and then you have the Quran. Aren't they really just the same thing? They just call it Allah. It's just another name from God. And the Jews call him Jehovah. It's just another name from God. Isn't this the same thing? If you ever get a chance to read both. And I realize nobody in here can read Aramaic, the Jews. And nobody in here can read Arabic, the Quran. If you ever get a chance to read a good translation... The God of the Quran looks nothing like the God of the Old Testament. They try and spin it every single way they can. Oh, God of the Old Testament was violent and judgmental, and that's the same way Allah is. He is violent and judgmental because he exacts judgment on the world. No, the God of the Old Testament is filled with grace and mercy and a heart filled with pain in a desperate attempt to draw his people back to him. Every time God brings judgment and wrath on the world in the Old Testament, it is preceded by numerous warning after numerous warning. There is no part in the Old Testament where you will ever see God says, stop doing that, or judgment, and then two seconds later, there's the judgment. It doesn't happen. Even Noah, who built the ark, God said, I'm going to flood the earth, and all of a sudden the flood came. Some scholars believe it took up to 500 years to build the ark. Now that's on the long end. The lowest estimate is about 120 years to build the ark. So for 120 years, Noah is warning everyone every day, there's a flood coming, join me on the ark. There's a flood coming, join me on. If God did not say to Noah, nobody gets on the ark but you, he said, build an ark. 
No exclude. I'll bring you the animals, Noah. Build an ark. Anybody who wanted to get on that thing and help out with that could have until God shut the door. There is nowhere in the Old Testament where you will find God's judgment suddenly descends without warning or without any opportunity of repentance. Even Jonah was spat out by a whale to give Nineveh, the most vile city in all the world at the time, an opportunity to repent. God looks at Jonah. Jonah, I'm going to destroy this city. You go tell them about me so that I don't have to. You want to know why? Because God does not relish or enjoy the destruction of his children because no matter how awful or vile a person is they are still crafted with delicacy in the image of God by God's hands himself there's no part where God enjoys his judgment being passed on the world the only part of judgment that God enjoys is when he gets to judge I'm going to give my children good things and I'm going to give Satan all the pain and trauma and terror that he has exacted on my children Those are the only two places of judgment God enjoys. Blessing to his children, terror to the devil. You read the Quran. That God does the same type of judgment. But he comes in swift, aggressive, and wrathful, enjoying the wrath that he exacts on the world. They didn't love me and they didn't believe me. I'm going to enjoy taking this sword and removing them from existence so that the only thing left alive, the Quran is filled with the same amount of bloodshed as the Old Testament is. The difference is, is when you read the book of the Old Testament and you're interacting with Yahweh, Jehovah, is that you see a God desperate to redeem his people back to him. And when you read the Quran, you see a God desperate to destroy anybody who looks nothing like him. Not every way leads to God. And I wish it were easier than that. But Jesus is pretty clear. I am the. What about the next part? I am the truth. That's a very unpopular statement today. How many times have you ever heard people say, well, this is my truth? To which I just want to take a brick and hurl it at the TV screen. I don't want to hit the person. I'm just like, if I have to hear that stupid statement one more time, I am going to beat my head with a rubber mallet, not the hard ones, the ones that you see in cartoons where it just squeaks the whole time, just like I can't, like, why? How did we ever get to this place where there's multiple truths? How did we ever arrive to this place where there is this idea, well, that is your truth, and it's true for you, but it's not true for me. Now, if you really want to get into what people are saying, we'll get into that in a second, but there is no such thing as a truth, or your truth, or my truth. There is simply the truth, and I will give you a very easy example of that. If anybody is so inclined to, while there is rain outside, you are free to climb up on the canopy out there over the front porch on top of the roof, and you are free to say, my truth is that I am not bound by gravity, and jump off the roof, and we will all see how your truth works out for you. Well, that's your truth. That's true for you. No, Jesus said, I am the truth. There's not other truths mixed in. You can't find a different truth that might fit alongside with him. He does not play well with other quote-unquote truths. He is the truth. Nothing else gets to be true aside him. Nothing else gets to be true before him. There's not another truth after him. He says, I am the truth, non-negotiable. Well, but what if I've never seen Jesus? What if I've never heard Jesus? What do I do that the truth, no one comes to the Father except through the truth, Jesus? I don't have an option outside of him. This is getting really Really exclusive, isn't it? The Bible is the most curious thing ever written because it is the most inclusive thing in that Jesus has come to die and redeem all. It is the most exclusive book ever written because it says the only way you get to be redeemed is with him. 
Jesus came to redeem everybody. Fantastic. Come as you are. Absolutely. Come as you are. Just keep in mind the only truth that is going to bring you as you are to the actual truth is Jesus. The truth. You want to know what people are trying to say when they say my truth? They're trying to say my experience. But if they leave it at my experience, the problem is, is that truth can come alongside and say, yes, you experienced this. Do you understand that there's more than this? Do you understand this is not the way it has to be? Do you understand that just because these experiences happen to you, whether good, bad, ugly, or indifferent, do you understand that even though this has been your life up till now and everything in your life has validated the way you see the world and the way you see people because it has just happened over and over and over again, even though that has been your experience, there is a truth that would come alongside you and redirect everything in your life so that there becomes a compassion or a peace or less anxiety or a hope in your life that cannot be achieved when all of a sudden you take your experiences and you turn them into truth. What is happening when people take their experiences and say, well, it's my truth, they are catalyzing it so that they are no longer required to change. God loves us way too much to leave us how we are. You mean you don't want to stop doing the worst things that you can't even stand about yourself? Do you mean you don't even want to be free about the things that you wish you didn't know about yourself that you try and hide in the darkest corners of your mind? Do you mean that all those memories and traumas and experiences that you've had that have crafted you and redefined you as you are today, do you mean that you would just rather have those sit in the back corner of your mind as you pretend that they never happened, but they continue to influence and plague you day in and day? Do you mean to tell me you would rather keep those there rather than find out that maybe I was wrong about how things work and there's a way to be free from those? See, the problem is most of the time when we give the truth, we just tell people, you're wrong, you're going to hell. Now, that might be true, but we get, forget the other part. When Jesus looks at Andrew and says, I tell you the truth, you will see angels descending and ascending at the Son of Man. You want to know what Jesus is saying? I'm the place where heaven comes down to earth and changes your life. When I interact with the truth, it's not just all of a sudden, well, now I'm right. No, when I interact with the truth, what it starts doing is it starts reaching into the brokenness of my life. And not in a violent way, not in an aggressive way, not in an abusive way. It begins to reach into the brokenness of my life. And it begins to heal and redeem those areas that I thought would cripple me forever because I had bought into the lie. Well, that's what happened to me. That's my experience. Not only is it my experience, but it's my truth. This is now how it is, and there is no hope. The word truth means it is non-negotiable. The word truth means that there is no other option outside of it. And when a world looks at their life and says their experience, this is my truth, what they have done is they have resigned to a hopelessness that says, I will never escape. And yet Jesus walks in and says, I'm the truth. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I am the life. Exclusivity is Jesus' favorite game when it comes to salvation. He does not share his glory, he does not share his power, he does not share his authority when it comes to being redeemed. In fact, did you know he doesn't even share the ability to save people? What did he tell us in the Great Commission? Matthew 28, 20. Go ye therefore into all the world preaching them all the things I have commanded them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and make disciples. Where does he say save people? 
Now, we make that leap because you really don't get to be a disciple unless you've been saved. I get it. How am I supposed to make a disciple unless the person is saved? How am I supposed to help them become more like you? That's what a disciple is. Someone who follows Jesus in such a way that Jesus is allowed to influence their life so that person stops looking like what they think they ought to be and begin looking more like Christ. How in the world can I help make disciples if they are not saved? The reason he didn't include that in there is because that part's his business. He says, the only thing I want you to worry about is go into all the world. Tell them what I said. Teach them everything I said. If I'm teaching them everything that you've said, then that means they've got to get it right. Did you get everything right in school when the teacher was teaching you? You might have taken a test that said you were wrong, but the teacher couldn't make you get it right. And the worst part is, sometimes some of us in school knew the right answers, and we just wouldn't put down the right answer because we were too lazy to read the question. That was my problem, which is why I was grounded most of the time. Come home, why do you have an F in math? I just didn't pay attention. What, what did you do? Just randomly fill in the bubbles? No, I just read the first half of it, and then I answered it because I thought I had it. Just another paragraph. Just can't make me get the right answer even if I know the right answer. Can't make people get saved just because you're teaching them. Can't save people just because I'm telling them everything. Make disciples. Preach, teach, and then Jesus steps in and decides whether or not that person's going to receive him at that point. And then I step back in, make disciples. He does not share any capacity of his salvation authority with anybody. Not even when I'm witnessing. Not even when I'm preaching. Not even when I'm evangelizing. There is no area in scripture where you will see anybody given any authority or power to save at all. Because Christ is very clear. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not through good preaching, not through good attendance at church, not through good tithing, not through good theology, not through good beliefs, not through a good life, not through anything else. No one comes to the Father except me. Preacher, why is this a problem passage? Because at some point, there's going to be someone who's lost, dead in sin, not saved, not born again, whatever terminology you want to use, at some point there is going to be someone who is not made alive in Christ. And in their desperation of wanting to be with God, they will feel torn between who they think they are and who God's calling them to be. And in that moment, what they do not need is you to soothe over their conscience nor do they need you to be the judging voice of God and letting them know that they're awful. In that moment, what they need is someone to, in love, speak truth into their life. Someone who says, I understand what it is to be torn between two worlds. In fact, even the Bible talks about that. The good I want to do, I don't do. The bad I don't want to do, I find myself doing that. Who will save me from this wretched man that I am? Thanks be to God that Jesus has died to redeem me. What they need at that moment is, I understand the tearing that's happening inside of you. I understand the pain it's causing you. I understand the chaos it's causing within your mind. I understand the turmoil that feels like it's swirling like a tornado inside of you. I promise you that if you take the way, I promise you that if you take the truth, if you take the life. The tearing that's happening inside of you 
while there is still sin in the world, will finally be let go as you start chasing after someone who can actually show you who you really are. Number one problem in the United States, I don't know about the world, but the number one problem in the United States is nobody knows who they are anymore. Want to know why they don't know who they are anymore? Because the only one that can identify someone is the one that gives that thing life. And when we have severed ourselves from God, we've severed ourselves from the one that gives us life. And when we've severed ourselves from the one that gives us life, we have removed the ability to be identified. And when we don't know who we are, we throw ourselves at anything and everything that even gives a glimpse of hope that maybe I can solidify something about myself rather than feeling I am living in swirling chaos every day of my life. There's a reason he said life at the end because what he's saying when he says that, he's saying I want to give you hope. I want to give you solidarity. I want to give you foundation. I want to give you structure. Not so that I can tell you what to do. Not so that I can make you feel bad about yourself. Not so that when you step outside the bounds and mess everything up, I can beat you with a stick. But so that I can show you who you actually are so that you actually have an understanding of who I'm calling you to be. What do you want to be when you grow up? You want to know what I want to be? I just want to be close to daddy. Because if I'm close to dad, He'll let me know. Did you know that I put these gifts in you? I did not know that, God. Did you know that I had no clue I could play piano until I was 22? Zero clue. Tried playing piano so many times growing up. Would sit down at the piano, and I'd sit there and s play, do a deer, a female. If you ever seen The Sound of Music, you know that song. Ray, a drop of golden sun. And my mom would come up to me, JJ, that's so good. And I'd look at the piano. It was like, it's, it's not that good. And so then I'd try and learn how to play piano, and it'd sound awful. And one day I'm at college, and I have no more classes to take, but I still have to have more credits. I guess I'm taking piano lessons. I guess I'll just endure being terrible for a semester or two, knowing that I'll get some type of grade and graduate college, but I'll just be awful at this. And I go in, and I start praying, and I start asking God, God, if you could help me figure out how to do this. And I sat down at that piano in that first class, and it was do a deer, a just as awful as ever. And I went to my next lesson. He says, just go ahead and play this. And I tried playing it, and it was awful. I felt like I was having a seizure. My left hand would not do what my right hand needed it to. My right hand, it felt like my brain seized up. And then all of a sudden, I had a friend starting a church, and I looked at him and said, listen, I know you're starting a church. I'll help you out with it. I don't know what you need, but I'll just be here to help you. You know, I'm really close to you. I love you. I know what you believe. I'm happy to help you start this church. And he looks at me and says, aren't you taking piano lessons? Taking lessons is a very loose term. Maybe... I show up to a place where there's a teacher and a piano, and she just gets frustrated with me. Let's call it that. He's like, all right, you're playing piano tonight. I was like, that's a bad idea. You want people to come to this church, all right? You don't want me. He's like, it's fine. Hands me sheet music, chords, and says, all right, go sit at the piano. We're practicing right now. I was like, I don't know how to play. He's like, play whatever chord you can when it's the right time. So what does that mean? He says, it takes you a while to figure out what the chord is. So pick the chord you're going to play way ahead of time, and when we get to that chord, then play that chord. My hand stayed in one spot the whole time as I played C-sharp minor every 16 measures. C-sharp minor. And then I got really, oh, that sounds good. I'll go to an E. And then I messed up the E, so I went back to C-sharp minor. I said, don't leave this ever again. I remember going to God and praying, God, I, I told him I'd help with his church. I can't play piano. If you'll help me figure out how to do this, I'll make sure that whenever I'm playing piano, ultimately it is for your glory. 
about a month goes by, and all of a sudden, my hands start taking off. Every time I tried to play piano, it was just because I wanted to. Then all of a sudden, I get close to Dad. He's like, did you know I put a gift in you that I wasn't interested in opening up for you until I knew how you were going to use it? I went to God and said, God, can I do it with the cello? He said, you can try. It's not going to work. Picked up the cello. Christina got me a cello as an engagement present, and she regrets that present every day of our lives. I got her an engagement ring. She got me an engagement cello. God, will you help me play this cello? No, I will not. I'll do it for your glory. You might do it for my glory, but it will hurt everyone's ears. I was like, all right. The way. The truth. The life. There are things about you, even if you're alive in Christ, that if you're unwilling to stay close to him, that if you're unwilling to live daily his way, not get it right all the time, the conversation is not about do you get it right all the time because even the Bible says on your best days, it's nasty. That's a very, very modern way of saying the righteousness of man is as filthy rags before the Lord. On your best day, righteousness, you are just a nasty rag. The one that dad has used every time he has to change the oil in his car and he refuses to get rid of. The one that has all the sweat and grime and dirt stuck in it. God says, you did so well today. This is what you look like. Thanks, God. So much for the encouragement part. It's not about getting it right. It's about, God, by your grace, I'm going to try and go the way. God, by your grace, I'm going to do what I can to let your truth override my experience. God, by your grace, I'm going to do what I can to let your life override what I think my life is. And in that... In that comes peace. In that comes growth. In that comes strength. In that comes authority. In that comes power. In that comes love. In that comes joy. Notice what I did not say. I did not say in there all of a sudden everything gets easy. No, be not, let not your hearts be troubled. In this life you will have many troubles, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. Jesus does not promise an easy life. Notice what I did not say. I did not say in that you'll find happiness. Happiness is conditional on the circumstances around you. Notice what I did not say and with all this. You will be sad. That's not anything either. It's the same thing as happiness. It's just the other side of the spectrum. It is conditional on what happens around you. What Jesus promises when I am willing to accept that he is the way, the truth, the life. What he promises in that breath is that I will ensure that as long as you're close to me, there will be peace. Means everything stops spinning? No, it just means you stop spinning. I will ensure that there will be focus. You mean I'll be able to pay attention even though I have ADD? No, that's not what I said. I'll just be able to make sure that you understand that there is something you're going for. In that, I'll make sure that your trauma gets healed. You mean I don't have to go to counseling anymore? No, you probably still should go to counseling, and there might be some meds that you need to take along with that under the care of a psychiatrist and all of those things. Nothing wrong with that, but I will lead you in such a way that you will begin to receive healing that cannot happen outside of the way, the truth, and the life. I am not saying that I look at everything in this world that it has to offer to try and help people heal and get better, and I think it's wonderful when an alcoholic stops drinking alcohol or when a porn addict or a lust addict or a sex addict stops doing all of those things or when someone who has lived with depression and anxiety all of their life finally finds freedom and peace in their life. I have nothing wrong with that, but the problem is it always leaves a vacancy when it's done outside of Christ. 
worst thing about that is when you get rid of one demon, if you don't occupy the area, seven more come back to take its place. I don't have any problem with counseling. I don't have any problem with psychology or psychiatry or meds. I don't have any problem with any program. But the problem that I have is when they eliminate the only one that can give any sort of life, way, and truth. There's going to be Christians who come to us broken. I don't know what to do. Let's just stay next to the way, the truth, and the life and go from there. I don't have the answers to your life problems, but I know how to walk next to you and then next to Jesus. I feel so stuck. I don't know what to do. I feel like Jesus wants me, but I don't want to give up all these things. I get that. I understand the tearing and the rendering happening. I can promise you that if you are born again, there comes a hope and a rest that cannot be achieved outside of that. And when I screw up and I hurt you, or when you screw up and you hurt me, just remember, Even though I need to repent or you need to repent, I was just walking next to you. It wasn't the way, the truth, and the life that messed it up. The worst thing we do sometimes when we're teaching people or walking alongside them is we say, don't worry about it, I'll get you there. Be nice. I wish even the best of Christians could do that, but the reality is, is I can't get anybody there at some point I'm going to trip on myself and I might fall down and hit you on the way and when you feel let down by me if it wasn't Jesus you were trying to chase after you'll throw your hands up and abandon the whole thing we're going to hurt some people on accident hopefully not out of malice this church is going to do things where we mess up and people get hurt here we will help Assist in adding more church trauma to people. Just going to happen. Even the best of parents traumatize their children. Just going to happen. The question is not, are we going to end up hurting people? The question is, are we going to keep on trying to lead them to the healer? And Jesus says, it's me or nothing. And let me tell you something. It might not look like it. It might not seem like it. Everything you see on the news might say otherwise. But this world is desperate to find the truth so that they stop spiraling out of control. And until there are a people that love God and are willing to love them where they're at, they will be unwilling to hear the truth and acknowledge the way and be redeemed into the life.